Welcome back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. Just me on the mic today on this side. Uh, Carly is going to be taking the week off, but fear not. I have a wonderful guest on the factory floor with me today. Uh, Film writer, poster extraordinaire, Comrade Yui is here with me. Yui, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on, Aaron. I'm I'm a huge fan of the show and what you guys do. And someone's got to tackle this '90s shit, and you guys are the best ones to do it. <laughs> That's right. It is. Uh, we've taken up this mantle specifically because uh, of its necessity. It is a a thing that uh, must happen. And you're right. Uh, but uh, we've we've commissioned you today to come on the show and talk about one of the greatest. Uh, of our living creators, probably I would say one of our one of our greatest like Hollywood filmmakers of yesteryear and and still kicking at was it ninety two years old now? Yes, I believe so. Ninety two. My God. Well, it is it is the the God Clint Eastwood that we are covering today, and uh, we're going to be talking about his nineteen ninety five film, The Bridges of Madison County. And Yui, this is one that you uh, suggested that that we cover uh, when we were kind of back and forth discussing '90s movies and and some potential uh, films that you might want to come on to talk about. I'm I'm curious where you started with the Bridges of Madison County, your feelings on it overall. Just a, a quick summation of of kind of this movie uh, and and how you discovered it. Um, well, I discovered it fairly recently. Just going through the, um, basically just, you know, deciding to myself, okay, Clint's a guy that I care about a lot as a filmmaker, and I'm just going to watch every single one of his movies. Um, the problem is, is that Clint has made almost 40 films, and they're all like <laughs> over two hours, except for like a few. So yeah. that means that, you know, and I like to do it chronologically. So, you know, it was a fair bit until I got around to Bridges um, and... I uh, I wasn't sure what to expect because this isn't Clint's usual type of fare, at least up until then. It's like, you know, like this is the guy who who makes, you know, the, the, the six or however many Dirty Harry movies. And, you know, he makes Heartbreak Ridge and, you know, even weird things like Bird. And so, you know, going into Bridges, I was like, ah, like, how is Clint going to do romance? Because he's he's like a. In a way, he's a sex symbol of his era, but you know he's not necessarily known for the amazing like uh, romances in you know any of his westerns, or you know he doesn't like usually co lead with um, like a, an actress like Meryl Streep. So you know, going in, I was you know kind of like, okay, this all right, we'll see. And it was like the classic 90s thing, right? Where it was like based off a best-selling book and, you know, all this kind of <laughs> stuff. And it's it, like it had Spielberg involved. And I was like, ah, it's going to be, you know, kind of weird and strange. And I watched it and I was just blown away. And I I didn't realize what an essential part of kind of his oeuvre it was. And I just began thinking like, oh, no, no. Like this is like far from being like, you know, outside of his purview. This is, you know, really like, much more of a piece with stuff like Unforgiven and White Hunter Black Heart than, you know, it's like I, I just had any knowledge of. And as someone who was kind of looking for his autorist, uh, you know, like handling of all these different genres and, you know, what themes that he was always interested in. And 
kind of the the process of him discovering and refining his voice over the decades and you know there's many decades that he does this over you know bridges kind of emerged as you know like clearly one of the best you know in my opinion a masterpiece of kind of his like uh i'm not going to call it like like oscar bait period but a period where he like he was first getting awards recognition in the early 90s after um you know unforgiven and then you had this kind Mm -hmm. of this streak that he had where it's like oh you know like we're finally giving Eastwood his due. And, you know, like they, the films, you know, had both uh, critical success and awards and, you know, there were box, box office successes. And yeah, it was just a, like Bridges is kind of the, the last movie in this like early nineties cycle. And in, in my opinion, it kind of stands as the best of them. Clint is, he's not the obvious choice for this kind of material. Um, he certainly, I, I think in, in the minds of people who had, had read the novel, uh, was not who they expected to be playing Robert Kincaid. Um, and up to this point, he hadn't really proven himself as someone who could tackle this kind of like sweeping, uh, depthful kind of like melodrama, you know, especially off of Unforgiven. But there is, there are components here that i see in terms of its kind of ruminative qualities it's its thoughts and uh, about old age ab- about life about loss all of those things kind of swirling together here to to make this whole that just feels uh really really powerful for something kind of as as deliberately paced as it is uh one thing i i hadn't anticipated when we had talked about doing this movie yui is just kind of how inarticulable a lot of its magic is. I, you know, I, I can't find a lot of really good long writing on this movie, despite the fact that many people I know uh, told me I, I love this movie. It's one of my favorite Clint movies. Uh, you know, it's it's a masterpiece. The more I kind of interrogated that the more I sought things out, the more there kind of seems to be this like deeply held sort of reverence for it at a distance. And a lot of people that, that know it's, you know, monumental, but it's also very delicate. If you talk about it too much uh, you know, it it starts to kind of dissipate in terms of its impact, uh, which makes it a hard movie to cover on a podcast. Yui, (laughs) I don't know. I don't, uh, I, I have come with things prepared, but I am, I am, admittedly nervous about destroying some of the majesty of it as we talk it through. Yeah, well, I figure maybe we can start with the idea of, you know, you say like, okay, like this is a, like, oh, one of my favorite Clint movies, you know, people are saying this and it's definitely one of mine. Um, but it's interesting in that you got to wonder when that's said, right, then, but there's not that kind of deeper uh, level of examination towards it, why exactly that is. And, and for that, like, I, I want to ask you, Aaron, like, what is your relationship to Eastwood in general as both like an actor and a director? Because like what, like, you know, other people coming to their, um, like a film like this with their own baggage might be like, kind of approaching it, like you said, at that distance removed and saying, oh, you know what, like, maybe this is like one of my favorites, but I don't know quite how to talk about it, because it doesn't quite fit within um, the image or the relationship that I have with Eastwood. So like, like what does that look like for you? Cause I'm honestly curious. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I came to Eastwood initially as an actor, I think like, like many people do. Um, I, I think the very first things I ever saw him in actually were, were his, uh, Leone spaghetti Westerns. 
outside of that, like Josie Wales and and things like that are, are, are where I kind of knew him. I, I knew him as the Western guy, you know? Right. Uh, and then I, I think as I kind of approached sort of like my my awakening uh, in, in terms of my appreciation for film, I saw a lot of his movies. It was right around the time of like his his sort of mid-aughts push there. I, like Million Dollar Baby was one, Mystic River. Yeah, his like um, second Oscar success. Exactly. And then, of course, like the the one, two of Flags of Our Fathers, Letters from Iwo Jima, all of those were, were the ones where I really started to come into to Clint as a filmmaker. And it wasn't until a little bit later that I finally saw uh, Unforgiven. And Unforgiven was the one for me that really cemented Clint as uh, like uh, kind of this quiet master of of cinema and specifically of this particular mode of cinema. Um, we have not talked about Clint on the show before. I think I still retain uh, of all the films I've seen as uh, unforgiven is probably his, his masterpiece his opus. But yeah, I mean, he's such an interesting figure and, and the more I've seen his, his films, especially late period Clint as a filmmaker mm-hmm. and his sort of infatuations and, and experiments. I, I think he's one of the, more interesting filmmakers working right now within Hollywood and and the things that he's trying to achieve and the things that maybe incidentally he in, he achieves with his work uh transcend really any sort of like easy binaries and and you know summations of him as a person or or the things that he believes what about for you i mean for me he's like uh like a seminal bedrock figure for me um like i i came to him like you did with the the dollars trilogy where you know, my dad, like, you know, when I was a kid, he was like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, you, you like the, like, you know, because I would watch, um, I watch things like, uh, like musicals and, and kaiju movies. And, you know, I would just like anything that had like Godzilla on it. I'd be like, oh, I want to see this. So my dad was like, well, <laughs> let me show you like the, the movies that I love. And I was like, okay. And like, I'm like seven years old. And the first thing he shows me is, is Alien on VHS. And I just <laughs> That's what like, my dad did when I was the same age. It no was, shit. It was that movie. Oh, that, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. See? The, <laughs> and so like, you know, we went along and, you know, I saw these like Schwarzenegger movies and these Stallone movies. And then my dad's like, ah, oh, you know what? Like, you know, right next to those, like the, the, the badass of badasses is Clint Eastwood. And I was like, okay. Like I didn't, you know, I, I had never seen a Western before. And so uh basically like over the course of a weekend we watched the entire dollars trilogy and like my mind like basically explodes i'm like these are the coolest films i've ever seen and then you know my dad's like oh well there's some more he did and i'm like okay cool you know like just give me him just give me i would wanted to absorb everything (laughs) and then i watch unforgiven i'm like oh what like what is this like he's he's old and he falls off the horse (laughs) <laughs> and like he's bad at what he does and like he can't shoot because he like he's he can't see and like he's you know it just it was a total you know complete inversion of the the world that had been constructed for me in those leone movies and i like i, I was struggling to be like i like this but i don't know like like why isn't this like the other ones and like i, I could tell obviously that it was like made later but i was trying to think like well if it's like the same Western with the same guy, like what's different about it. And that was my real awakening to like, Oh, this is the job that a director does. Like this is, Mm -hmm. this is a director taking a different thing to the same material, like a new approach. And like, that was like really important to my like burgeoning cinephilia where it was no longer just 
oh, I watch a movie because I like the concept or I like the actor or it's got a dinosaur and or, you know, whatever it became. <laughs> oh, like there are certain people who make better movies than others or movies that I like more or movies that are different hmm. in this way. And so in like in that way, like Clint was the really my first recognition of what an auteur was and like the difference between the way that he would make something versus the way that Leone did. I thought was like really interesting. I was like, Oh, he's both, you know, in front of the camera and behind it. And like, he, he's doing the score too. And I thought that was crazy. I was like, Oh man, he's mm-hmm. like, how can you do all these different things? And um, like going to, to bridges, I think this is, uh, it's not quite a trilogy, but like of a, like a, a five or four film piece with basically everything he made in the early nineties. I think, mm-hmm. I think the rookie, White Hunter Blackheart, Unforgiven, A Perfect World, and Bridges are essentially like all movies about the same thing, more or less, but just from Hmm. different angles. And it's just kind of all the variations that he's making on trying to like puncture this idea of the kind of the loner, like badass, macho, you know, hyper masculine hero that he had, you know, made all his bones and his success playing over and over. So like you know after this like whole series of films you got to think like okay like you know Clint's <laughs> had a lot to say about masculinity and that's what makes Bridges so fascinating to me is that it's a very rare film and I think Eastwood's you know his project because and I think this is why it's hard to quantify and I think this is why we have a hard time talking about it is that it's one of the rare films of his that exists in a space of uh total ambiguity rather than um like trying to achieve a specific end and a lot of his films he'll have these kind of these side characters who behave like total jerks and who are kind of worthless in terms of the story and only exist to be annoying or to be antagonistic or to be the butt of a joke right but in this like everyone does feel like oh no that's a person i think that's like kind of the the inherent weirdness of the film is that it's the culmination of this series of ruminations. And at the end, you know, he's moved beyond like, you know, is this character right or wrong for their behavior? Instead, he's like, well, no, it's, it's the choices that they made. And it's kind of his most like mature work in that way is that Mm -hmm. there's no, there's no uh, like Manichaean desire to condemn or say like, all right, this is, how it is and this is how it isn't and it's you know he's he's allowing this to play out um again in a, in a space of ambiguity in a space of pluralism i think there are images that lie within my heart Images with the power to recall the warmth of a summer's night. The stillness before a storm. Reminding me of the first time I ever saw him. When he stopped and asked directions to Rosamund Bridge. A moment when there was nowhere else to go. Except towards love. Warner Brothers presents the most passionately read love story of our time. Clint Eastwood, Meryl Streep, 
the bridges of Madison County. It is one of his most mature films, uh, to be sure, and, and one that I think just like revels in that ambiguity. You know, it has these elements of like melodrama and uh, you know, it, it feels sort of like a, a kind of genre romance piece. And, and from what I can gather, the the novel that this movie is based on by Robert James Waller is is a lot of that kind of very didactic very oversimplified very overwrought kind of prose like and simplicity paperback that got adapted all the time in the 90s it, it totally absolutely and uh, you know i think a lot of credit here to uh richard lagravenese lagravenese I, I i don't know how you would pronounce his last name but but the screenwriter here um who i i guess was the one who who finally uh sort of revealed the the hidden textures of this film after like three or four passes by other screenwriters for it uh for for clint and for spielberg here uh but but it it does have just sort of this like simple brilliance to it there's there's so much room there and and i think one of the things that clint does so well is, is he just he's patient as a filmmaker you know he's unfussy he's unbothered by like allowing things to just kind of play out at their own pace and and you know uh just just sort of live and dwell in a space without worrying about making it flashy for the audience he he has a a good level i think of confidence there and and a good level of trust in his audience to just sort of go along with things and it doesn't always work but when it does work it 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 really works and in this one there is so much kind of quiet empty space that is just like looks and and uh, you know, occasional touches and and brushes of of shoulders and and legs and that kind of or thing. The, that like just the like, way that the wind will blow in a scene, or the way that you know the the bridge will kind of creak and moan in like the the sound mix. You know, there's there's these weird little poetic touches that um, give you this sense of you know um, a place that has an existence outside of the instrumental confines of the narrative. Completely. And it, it all just renders it with this just like lushness, this this realism. Um, uh, I, I'm a big sound person when it comes to films. And uh, you can hear the kind of simmer of like the, the heat in the air. You hear the flies buzzing, the, the birds calling. It's just it's such a rich place in terms of the textures that Clint imbues it with. And it really is just like a perfect kind of canvas of very beautiful, very lyrical nothing for him to play out all of this, this in the same stuff way that with him and Meryl. Westerns do. Like the landscape itself becomes like you don't need to do that much with you know the the wide open vista of a desert or a mountain range. It just it speaks its own existence into manifestation. Absolutely. Uh let's talk really quickly about about Merrill in this movie. Um I don't. I don't know how you feel personally about Meryl. I think she's always been a, a complicated actress for me uh, yeah. because I I understand the reverence. I understand um, why she is so praised, but there is something kind of hallowed, sort of sanctified about her that I've always found distancing, and especially because so much of the kind of work she does is always in kind of uh, these these. I, I mean, to speak majority of a, a lot of it, kind of awards bait sort of stuff, right? Things yes, that are like yes. movies for her to to act the hell out of, but that are 
otherwise kind of devoid of of more complexity than just like a good character and some some snappy dialogue for her to recite um i I don't know how do you how do you feel about meryl yui well i think what you point to aaron is like this quality about her that's a little this is kind of a reductive word but like a little bit tryhardy um, mm-hmm. Which is not the worst thing. I mean, like, Lord knows we have like plenty of people who are who tried the hardest in the world in like the film industry, and you know we're like, oh, we love them for it. Um, and I think to criticize her for that in specific is kind of like um, that like annoying pattern where people's like you know like you know Robert De Niro will like do all these annoying things for a role and like get really in character and will be like he's a genius, but then you know like a, a similar like female actor will do this and then it'll be like ah she's hard to work with right. And I think right. that always sucks. Yep. So like I don't I don't want to get on her too much for you know like wanting to, you know, chew on some material. I feel tell me if you agree with me about this. I feel as if the problem with her is that she's a good actress who has not actually been in that many great movies. That's exactly um, right. Yes. I think her taste in material is aggressively middle brow and that's not the worst thing in the world, but it doesn't, you know, like her, like a risk for her in terms of performance, right? Is her doing, you know, death becomes her or her doing mm-hmm. little women or her doing, um, uh, what is it? The devil wears Prada or this to be right. honest, like, cause I, I've watched some of the behind the scenes with her and she's frankly like, Oh, well, you know, I didn't really finish the book and, you know, I, I thought it was nice, and then I read the script. And I thought, oh, this was going to be you know something exceptional, and I, I feel as if, um, you know, you pointed out like kind of it, they, the movies seem more like vehicles for her, and I think that's mm-hmm. like you got to think to yourself, like as uh, an actor of her caliber trying to stake out a, like a space in Hollywood, especially a space in Hollywood for, you know, like a woman who, you know, like in this film is in her forties and who mm-hmm. eventually went on to, to, you know, be older and older. It's hard to, yeah, you, you can't really be mad at her for being like, okay, like I need to, you know, like literally just make it so that the film is, you know, more or less my vehicle to, you know, like be almost an advertisement for my abilities as a performer you know, she's never made like something that's like, I would say like straight down the middle, like, oh man, that's a movie that I would love to, you know, watch and rewatch again, except for things like, you know, maybe like Bridges or Devil Wears Prada, where, you know, like these are like more or less like fun movies that the average person would like to go to. And she just doesn't have a lot of those. And yeah, not, not every performer needs them, but like, she's an interesting case because, you know, she's the world's greatest actress who again like i I don't think when you ask people like okay but what's what's her masterpiece and what are they going to say like the iron lady and you know i i I would rather like (laughs) not us say that that feels kind of like completely hollow as a statement (laughs) and i just like it i I think um i think she has a problem where again her her taste is it's it's good enough to keep her out of like the kind of the Diane Lane world of like okay I'm just gonna be the mom or the girlfriend in a bunch of films. Yeah, um, I love Diane Lane by the way. Like not criticizing her, but like no, that, that kind too, of trap. But... <laughs> yeah, and and 
So like to me, a role like this is actually kind of one of the best choices she could ever make. And it's kind of yes. similar to the deer hunter where it's like, okay, here's real, real good material with a real good director. And also you're playing, you know, across someone who's going to essentially give your performance more of a highlight because they are so diametrically opposed to the style that you have. Like, I cannot think of a more um, anti-Meryl Streep actor than Clint Eastwood. Um, but I think they both draw out good qualities in each other. Like, she becomes a little bit more relaxed as a performer, and he kind of has this more um, easygoing, uh, like, fluid sense of self that you don't see in, you know, the Westerns or the Dirty Harrys or even, you know, something like Unforgiven, which is him doing a vulnerable part but it's also like much more like wounded and angular in this. He's, you know, he's very soft and like, it's, it's nice to see soft, you know, grandpa Clint, <laughs> you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like you're seeing him as, <laughs> you know, okay, he's chill. You know, there's not this kind of this rage or this indignance in him. He's allowed to um, kind of realize himself in a more well-drawn way. Not to, not to trash on, on Streep too much, you know, but uh, be, because I think she, she really is terrific in this movie. Um, and you're you're so right, Yui, that there is sort of this this give and take between her and Clint that I think uh, works really well. It's a it's a very special kind of recipe there, uh, and also works really wonderfully for for both of their characters too. Um, the perspective is decidedly and very deliberately all Francesca's for for this film, um, save for maybe like one or two moments where we are are isolated and away from her I, I think specifically that kind of like midpoint uh diner scene where where robert yeah. is is with uh the the, the woman who uh, recently was uh outed uh you know cheating on uh cheating with rather having an affair with one of the the gentlemen in the town but yeah streep here there is there's like a caution to her that that works really well in certain parts of this that I'm not used to seeing from her. Um, the way she sort of lets her dialogue, lets a lot of the things she's saying almost sort of like literally just kind of deflate and like hang in the air for a moment, especially in those early moments of the film when she's first getting to meet Clint's character, when Francesca and Robert are first acquainted, uh, she's telling him about her life and you can see that she's almost trying to pull these kind of statements back into her mouth about the regret she kind of lives with and, and not disdain, but the disappointment she feels around these dreams unrealized around the life that she's made for herself with her husband and her children. Um, and it's really, really fun watching her work and watching her kind of do that while staying flirtatious and, and playful with Robert. But, but always with this sort of reservedness that, uh, yeah, that I that I think just works really phenomenally well for her character. Yeah, that part where um, you know she's first meeting him and kind of makes this casual offhand remark of you know like he's like oh were you busy or something I don't want to interrupt you like if you know you're gonna show me where these bridges are at and she's <laughs> like oh no I was just gonna have some iced tea and split the atom but that can wait and like the subtle kind of self inflicted harm of that line mm-hmm. i think like it works on the page but the way that she kind of casually tosses it off like really illustrates to me like like in that one little bit like the failure of like the the post 
you know, World War II ideal of like the suburban life, right? This idea mm-hmm. that like, um, you know, like, oh, like, you know, I, I go here and do this and then, you know, other important things happen. But like, really, at the end of the day, like, it's all just, again, like the splitting of hairs or the splitting of atoms. It's, you know, she is almost um, more considerate about her life than anyone else is. And like, I think her children only reach that level of um, their own consideration when they are exposed to her story at the end. And I think it's, I, I think you're very right in that she, I think, is very much like, you know, leaning into that vulnerability, but also leaning into that like sense of um especially in the early parts that sense of almost uh like self-hatred of almost like Mm -hmm. like how did i get here like what are the choices that i made that like allowed me to get here and that regret comes from those choices but also it's almost like i hate myself for thinking about that right it's Mm -hmm. it's not only that i regret doing this but i regret even thinking of my regret because now i feel guilty and um her trying to essentially live with that guilt is I think the major point of the story and um, you know, what she does to resolve that I think is like you know, Robert's ultimate gift to her is to say like, listen, you know, you can have um, your own like private existence and it's okay for you to not like totally be this, this ideal because there's a part of you that, you know, doesn't come from here. There's a part of, you know, you that has been where I have been in Italy and all these other places. And like that part will never change about you. There's a melancholy there, but there's also a sense of agency where she learns like, Oh, you know what though? I can talk about this to a friend. And like, you know, that, that woman that you talked about earlier who, um, uh, Robert, like here's, uh, over here is talking like all the the townspeople essentially, you know, talking shit about her (laughs) in the diner. Mm -hmm. Later, she later comes back and is like, Oh no, like, now um francesca can like talk to someone about these feelings and about her relationship with robert and like you know none of that would have happened if she essentially didn't give herself permission to say like okay like there's there's my there's my life as you know as a homemaker and as a part of this family and then there's my internal life and one of these things is not greater than the other they're both a part of me and it's about like piecing together her her sense of self and um, you know, I think it's something that like everyone can relate to. And that's what I just mm-hmm. find so achingly human about her performance. And there's a like a you point this out, like there's a spontaneity to it that I think is like <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think it's, you know, she's making good choices, but I think it's allowed to blossom into what it needs to be because Clint is like, um, yeah, you know what, we're just gonna do like maybe two takes and then move on. Like it's not over thought of, you know, it's not intellectualized. And that to me, I hate that in movies when a performance is so mannered and so thought about that, like all the spontaneity and humanity is drained out of it. And it just becomes this exercise and like, okay, I put this down and then I say these mm-hmm. lines and like, they turns it to like robotic stuff, which is like not to go into this, but like, I feel like a lot of people in David Fincher movies act like this and it drives me nuts. Oh, yeah. Where I'm like, <laughs> oh my God, like, please, guys, just breathe. You know, no one breathes in those kind of movies, but this, you mm-hmm. know, the characters breathe, you know, they 
they kind of do these little things that in other movies would be considered like, oh, that's a mistake or that's off cue or, but in here, Clint's like, no, 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 keep it in. Like, it's fine. Um, like, you know, just to like a, as an endpoint to that, like to illustrate that, did you see all like the flies in this movie? Yes. Did you notice in this? one of, uh, I was, I was going to bring, I made a note about these flies. I am glad yes. that you went here in one of the most like delicate moments of the entire movie. It's that, that kind of almost like last supper, like Caravaggio esque, like mm-hmm. candle lit dinner that they're having together when he kind of comes to the realization that, uh, that Francesca is not leaving with him, um, despite his, his invitation and has his line, you know, and, and says, uh, I'm probably going to miss it, but, but something like we're, we're, we're barely, uh, two people anymore or something like that. We're, we're, we're kind of, we're connected, right. That we're, right. we're more or less just one person now. Uh, and in that, a moment you know she's kind of looking away her face is in her hands and a fly lands just on her shoulder and she just very de- delicately brushes it away and it would be in i i feel like a, a much more stringent much more kind of like rigid filmmakers uh you know work a a, a take ending uh moment you know just cut you know the, the fly got on her like let's let's go again but it's there and it lives there. And it's just one of those things that feels so not undermining undermining is a bad word, but one that feels so realistic in, in how like it paints these otherwise sort of picturesque and like perfect cinematic moments with this tiny little flaw that just makes it feel that much more vivid and lived in. Yeah. That it's those kind of details to me that separate like craft from artistry eastwood's like done this since the beginning and like obviously this is like kind of um i think uh a run over from like the the western style that grew to become popular in the 60s and 70s and this is kind of what links him to like a lot of new hollywood guys is that he's a naturalist he's like no no no, this isn't going to be on a set like why let's just do it on location let's just go to the place do the photography and you know have it be there and you know, there's not a whole lot of sets on his movies. There's not a whole lot of like really contorted lighting. And like the longer they go on, just because he does these, you know, again, he does like, you know, one or two takes and is like, all right, time to go play golf. You know, there's there's not a whole lot of room to micromanage that stuff and just suck all the spontaneity out of it and make it into this like icy, perfect, immaculate sequence. And instead you just, you know, you get that, you get like, at one point, like he drops like a like a beer bottle, and like he's like kind of catches it before it drops, and you know there's <laughs> th- there's stuff where it's like to me that's somewhat of a lost art in an age where you know we have so many things being reshot or you know things being rewritten on the on the fly or mm-hmm. you know like there's like oh we'll just green screen the the backdrop and then you know we'll do we'll fix it in a post right everything's fixed in post but you don't ultimately like with a movie like this the simplicity of it is kind of the greatest boon in that you don't need to over edit it it doesn't need to um be composed in such a perfect way the the spontaneity of it is the beauty because it's a spontaneous romance that's what the story is and i think it's just like the perfect harmony of the form with the content of what the story is and um not all of eastwood's films have that some of them are a bit more kind of tight and cloistered 
Um, and, mm-hmm. and some of them are like really baggy and like, you're like, okay, what is going on here? Um, but <laughs> like this one, like the, the pitch is just perfect where, you know, it really feels like him being at home with a material that again, he just wouldn't expect of him. Um, yeah. Yeah. The stuff with the flies. I mean, yeah, I don't know how you feel about that, but to me, like if every movie had those kind of things, like I'd be, I'd be totally fine with it. I'd be like, nope. I'm not going to like, this is not like a cinema sins nitpick. Why are there flies in this scene? It's like, dude, have you ever <laughs> gone to like the, the middle of America and just like spent time and, you know, anywhere like, listen, these things, you know, but stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Like it's, again, it's it, to me, it's literally um, uh, a feature, not a bug, but it's also a bug. <laughs> <laughs> literally a bug. Um, yeah, that's that's Iowa core right there, right? That's rural max. Iowa core. <laughs> uh, that's Iowa core. When you've got lots of lots of flies in your in your film. No, I I agree uh, wholeheartedly with that. You know, and and much as I love you know uh, David Fincher, there is you know that that kind of conceit of like you know there there are two ways and the other way is wrong and and all of that. Like, well, he's like this, Hitchcock, this... right? Like he plans out everything and then mm-hmm. that's it. Like that the movie's already made before he begins it. Yeah, and you know with with Clint, it feels like, you know, there is, uh, some attention paid to, to rehearsal and to allowing, you know, things to kind of spawn between his performers. But, uh, yeah, the, the sort of nonchalance of his approach and, and the kind of unfussiness with the actual filmmaking, um, uh, again, works sometimes doesn't other times and, and winds up really, really sagging, uh, but when it does, it's just, it, it is, it's, it's lyrical. It's perfect. There's so much room in there for you as a viewer to kind of dwell in it. Um, I, I, I read that, you know, along with being shot in just 42 days, which was 10 days under, uh, Eastwood's original schedule, which bravo, what a guy, um, that they also shot the film chronologically as well for this very reason so that he and Meryl could be two performers and two characters learning about one another that, you know, he's that he doesn't have this, this overwrought heavily manipulated kind of like schedule and, and persistence with, uh, you know, the, the, the particular shots and, and compositions and, and way that he's going to structure these things, uh, the, the way, like you said, like a Hitchcock or a Fincher or a, a Kubrick or someone like that would, um, he's he's more focused on the verisimilitude of the emotional core of the characters and i think that that rings true throughout the film i I think that there's just it's it's such a depthful movie there's so much there and and not even just in the romance which I, i i think is pitch perfect by the way um but as we've already talked about a little bit the the ruminations on choice the ruminations on this idea of interiority versus like the life you actually live um one of the most famous lines in the movie is uh one of one of eastwoods and he says uh, the old dreams were the good dreams they didn't work out but i'm glad i had them and i think that that's a great like kind of guiding ethos of this right of of just the persistence of and the importance of dreams of of fantasies unrealized and recognizing that those things are not only normal and human and acceptable but also kind of necessary to existence that that there uh is is something deeply human about 
not regret, but a feeling of reverence for things unrealized about yourself. And, and yeah, it's, it's just a thing that would feel so cliched. And I think so kind of like binary in lesser hands, but that he's able to imbue with so much delicacy, so much sort of like complexity here uh, that I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm babbling, even, even trying to like pinpoint it exactly. It's just, it's, it's so lovely and, and lyrically kind of complex and, and wonderful. And I, I just think it's, it's really masterful stuff he's working with here. Yeah. You know what? I, I will, you know, again, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think I, I can tell you exactly why, um, it's both hard to express, but also like, again, pitched in that perfect way that you're talking about is that this is a romantic movie, but this is not a sentimental movie. Like Mm -hmm. Eastwood is a total pragmatist. You know, he comes out of a pragmatic tradition. That's, you know, of guys like Don Siegel who are just like, Nope, just get it done. Movies under two hours. You know, like we're just gonna (laughs) like, everything is like stitched together tight you know, economy of action and, and just you don't have a step that feels uh, extraneous to what you're trying to accomplish. And so like all of his movies are, you know, sequels are very like, you know, hard edged and kind of like feature these like compromised characters in bad situations and the kind of um, the what they have to do to make it out of that space or this situation. And I feel like Eastwood really takes that to heart. I mean, he's a guy, um, honestly, he, like, he reminds me a lot of, uh, filmmakers Eastwood. He reminds me a lot of guys like William Wellman and Howard Hawks, where Mm -hmm. the whole point of the movie is like, not that, you know, Oh, we're going to, you know, have this big romance and, Oh, but what a sentimentalist would do is you know like a guy like frank capra or even you know i like these guys but even guys like spielberg or um mm-hmm. i don't know uh oh what's his name cameron crow like yeah everything at the end of the movie would be wrapped up in a nice tidy bow right like that Absolutely. to me is like the difference between romance and sentimentality is that romance looks at tragedy and says okay i affirm your existence this the existence of a tragic aspect to human life and I'm not going to try and overcome it, but there's also the, these other aspects that are not in, you know, in, ensconced in the tragic notions of human life. What I like is that this movie doesn't paint um, Francesca's husband as like a scumbag. It's not like, Absolutely. oh, he's a piece of shit and she just wants to get away from it. It would be better if she did. No, he's just like, he's a loving dude and he's just a normal guy. And right. that's the pragmatism to me is that her marriage is not bad her family is not bad it's just that she is not recognizing a part of herself that is good right it's not mm-hmm. the problem is the denial um of herself it's not that what she's like spent time creating and when she talks with robert about this you know like when he kind of you know says oh you think of me like this and you think i'm this kind of like roguish cad who goes over the world and you know sleeps with these mm-hmm. people and like has no sense of self really and she you know and then he kind of you know, uh, rebuttals to her about, um, you know, it's like, oh, you want to leave your husband? She's like, no, like I'm, and he kind of like points out like, oh, you're, you're stuck here and you made all these choices that, you know, have made you unhappy. And she's like, I'm like, like, just because we can't all like be doing what you're doing, what you're doing doesn't mean that like 
you know, me choosing to be a homemaker is this like inherently naive or stupid idea. Um, Mm -hmm. Because like she talks about like, oh, I I wanted to see America and I wanted to, you know, go to this place and all this. So like her, again, like he's almost prefixing what she's going to throw back at him and that her dreams are, you know, not bad dreams. And that Mm -hmm. it is important that she recognize like, you know what? Actually, this isn't what this is what I wanted to do. It's just not all of what I wanted to do. Where are you staying while you were here? Uh, some place with small cabins, uh, something or other, motor in. Uh, huh. I, I've got it written down, but I haven't even checked in yet. And how long are you here for? Well. I don't know, maybe four or five days, uh, a week at the outside, as long as it takes to get the work done. Mm-hmm. Where's your family? My husband took the kids to the Illinois State Fair. My daughter is entering a prize steer. How old? Uh, a year and a half. No, I meant kids. Oh. <laughs> Michael is 17 and Caroline is 16. Oh, that's nice having kids. Yeah. Yeah, they're not kids anymore. Mm. Things change. They always do. One of the laws of nature. And you like living here in Iowa, I guess, huh? Mm. Yeah. Go ahead. (laughs) I'm not going to tell anyone. What I'm supposed to say, oh, it's just fine. It's quiet and the people are real nice. And uh, all that's true, mostly. (laughs) Well, it's not what I dreamed of (laughs) as a girl. You know, I scribbled something down the other day. I often do that when I'm out on the road. And it kind of goes like this. The old dreams were good dreams. They didn't work out, but I'm glad I had them. I don't know what all that means. I just thought I might use it someday. <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, if this were a film done by uh, any other type of filmmaker, uh, it would it would probably ring hollow. And, uh, you know, reading that, you know, Spielberg not only, you know, producing this through Amblin, but for a, a little while considered this as one of his films um, after reading uh, an early draft of it. Uh, I, I can't imagine what he would have done with the character of Richard with with Francesca's husband, just knowing his affinity for that kind of like distant and absent father figure and that sort of like troubled kind of romance at the center of it. Like uh, it, it would have been much easier to root for her in this uh, in this affair and for it to be textured as a very sort of binary good thing versus the bad thing she has. I, I, I can only imagine um, and and I really do love the way that Eastwood portrays Richard in the film. We will talk in a minute about 
the big kind of tearjerker climax because I think it's it's brilliant filmmaking. Uh, and, and it got me. But the moment at which like I was actually weeping in this movie is after that when Francesca is by Richard's side while he's in bed. They're in old age. He's clearly declining in health. And he tells her about his regret that he wasn't able to fulfill her dreams and that he loves her more than anything. And that was a moment for me where I just like, I, I about lost it. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's just one of those details that's so delicate. Um, and just, it, it's just like a wallop. It, it, uh, it adds that layer of complexity to all of it. And you understand the choice that Francesca's made and that it's not a good or a bad choice. It is just a choice. She has this kind of devotion and duty that she's decided to keep to her husband and to her children. Um, uh, and we see that the people that she's taking care of are grateful for that, uh, even even though she's denied herself this possibility and this potential of another part of herself. Um, that that for me was was one of the moments that, yeah, I'll say again, just just really just knocked the wind out of me. Yeah, I mean he's he's given um, like Richard, he's given the grace of um, having contradiction. And I think the most powerful characters in any movie are allowed to be contradictory to themselves mm-hmm. and for us to still like them because of those. Not in spite of them, but because of them, right? You feel this massive regret because you realize, oh no, like he doesn't deserve to be left alone either because he's he's aware. He's not um, this kind of like idiot. Right, you you realize like mm-hmm. oh no, he knows, and it's just a situation in which he he wishes he could be a guy like Robert in his position, right? And Robert, you know, probably wishes he could be Richard in, <laughs> in some way, and because mm-hmm. he talks about like it's like oh yeah, I know he's he's a nice guy, like you you know he's I'm not worth uh, <laughs> you leaving him over, and and I just love that like there's there's an internal respect for these characters that you, again, you didn't have to have this in the movie. You really didn't. This could have been played out as like, okay, it's tragic. Right. But there's a flatness to that tragedy. If you don't have a scene Mm -hmm. like the one you're talking about where he's allowed to, to, you know, to be um, with her in like a private moment and say, listen, like even as a character who like doesn't really have that much screen time, really in the context of the movie, he still feels like a real person, you know, again, just in this, I think this film, the genius of it is that it affords, um, uh, again, a, a grace and a forgiveness to characters who otherwise like may not have had it under any other director. And, you know, that's, that's a choice that Eastwood consistently makes. And it's, um, it's one that I feel like as the pragmatic artist that he is, he doesn't um, feel the necessity to input um, like, again, like a tidy little conclusion onto each and every relationship. He's, he's allowing things to be unfulfilled and to be tragic, but also to not be like, in a sense, like he's, he's not interested in judgment. He's interested in, in revelation and in, um, 
things coming to light, right? Like this, this whole movie is a process of Francesca, you know, revealing to herself who she is and like needing someone else to help her do that. I think equally rewarding is the way in which early on it's kind of explained or kind of revealed to us that the nature of Robert and Francesca's relationship will be doomed. And I'm not just talking about in the framing device, but I think very explicitly in those early conversations, we understand that the reason that Francesca is where she is, why she's in Iowa with this family, with this man, are because, as you mentioned earlier, Yui, she had dreams, she had goals, she had desires that she acted upon, and they didn't turn out quite the way she anticipated, or they curdled over a little bit, or you know, you, she grew a little bit more callous in, in age uh, after making those initial kind of, you know, decisions and, and, and rationalizations to herself. And so as we kind of understand all of these events and all of these choices that have led both these characters here, we also recognize that the relationship beyond the confines of this of this weekend, this long, you know, weekend with with a, a distinct sort of finality to it, will probably end the same, <laughs> you know, that that if they do act on this, that if she does leave with with Robert, there is always that possibility and and really likelihood that the nature of this thing and its passion will change, that it will it will become normalized in a way to both of them in a way that will remove it of that sense of grandeur in that way that it sort of uh, has revitalized both of them in a way. And I think that that complexity, that added sort of a ripple in it throughout this this love affair, uh, I don't know, it, it doesn't prepare us for the the tragedy of it, but it does make us think about it from the outset, knowing even, you know, alongside the fact that we are told already that, you know, this woman lived and died next to her husband and in her home um, without this man in her life. Yeah, the what you talk about with the the framing of the film, which Spielberg actually added to it, which is mm-hmm. interesting to me with the kids. Uh, what I like about that is that it adds this little touch of um, of not complete fatalism to it. Which uh, Eastwood has in some of his other movies, like mm-hmm. um, like Letters from Iwo Jima has the same structure, right? Where they have like the letters at the beginning, and then like you kind of see who's writing them, and then like you already know, like okay, <laughs> like this, like they dug these letters up in a cave, like this, <laughs> whoever wrote these is, you know, they they were not long for this world, and so <laughs> like when he when he has that, um, was it American Sniper also has the same thing? Yeah, I had never thought about it, but yeah, sure, like. Mm-hmm. Like this back and forth structure, and he has it in Sully. Um, yeah, there's there's a bunch of movies that kind of have this, and um, it's interesting because it, Eastwood to me is not someone I would qualify as a guy who messes around with um, chronology. Like he's not an experimental like let's you know push this narrative and see how far you know he's not making Magnolia or anything, right? Like he's not hopping right. around between these different perspectives a ton. Like when he makes a movie, it's pretty straightforward down the middle. Here's the story chronological. Like you said, like he even shot it chronologically. So I think the way that that structure is utilized to add that fatalism to it, it immediately kind of front loads the, the most sad part of the movie at the front, right? And I think that's such a 
ingenious move structurally because by putting her death and kind of this this mourning period at the front when we're kind of we're coming into the movie and we're the movie's trying to teach us how to watch it and we're trying to read its emotional register and when we're getting into that we have no relation to any of these characters so someone dying we're like okay well what does that mean who is this person and because the whole movie is then like by jumping off of her death as that rallying point is able to then fully explore her entire life or, you know, at least like the, the life that, you know, is important to the narrative. And, you know, we come to the final conclusion where they like, they are scattering her ashes and like that again, we're, we're allowed to engage with her passing um, in two different terms that, like the movie has a deft touch in, I think, um, kind of like, again, having its cake and eating it too, where, you know, we're first we're just engaging with her as an absence, right? But then when we mm-hmm. finally do engage with her, it's no longer through letters, but it's the material stuff of her ashes, right? And it's this like very mm-hmm. graceful moment where they're being like flicked over the bridges. And like that transition from, um, like the speaking voice to the materiality of her life, I think is, um, I think it's a part of the, the film's journey from regarding her as an object of her children's concern towards regarding her as um, this object of herself, right? This fully formed subjectivity that kind of has achieved a measure of peace and is able to talk about these subjects. And um, she's able to write about, Robert with with um you know a, a melancholy but also a strength that she derived from the relationship she had with him. And so, you know, even as like her ashes are being scattered, you get the feeling like you're not left in a moment of, you know, like, oh man, like someone just died. Instead you're like, oh, you know what? This is what she wanted, right? You you her desire animates the activity. And it just I think it's it's an incredible moment and it really reflects on, you know, her kids in a good way. And, you know, like it just, it leaves you in a moment where um, I think in, in a less kind of, uh, you know, if the screenwriter like wasn't as skilled and if it wasn't as, you know, lovingly presented, I think it would like almost be like somewhat cold, you know, maybe even comical, like, but again, like that, that structural fatalism gives us the space to say like okay the worst is already over death has already happened that's the worst thing that's really going to happen with this narrative for this character (laughs) right like and so we're then like kind of cut off the leash right we're like okay now we're you know it's almost like um the way that like action movies or james bond films work where they put like the Mm -hmm. biggest craziest set piece at the beginning and now they're like okay we got that out of the way now we can actually have a story you know it's a (laughs) it's a it's a nice little like a, like a bit of sleight of hand. <laughs> right. It's a tragic sort of amuse-bouche in this case. We're, we're just, we're wetted in our appetite right at the top of, of the film here. Um, and yeah, that just the, I don't know, the, I don't want to say tactility of it, but there is like some, something more tangible about that existence when we really just see that, that final moment of, you know, lingering on the bridge with her ashes kind of flying through the air yeah, it's a it's a beautiful shot. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of shots, like, what what did you think of um, Jack Green's photography here? Like, to me, it's almost um, 
it's interesting how like the shadows in this are so deep and like yeah when they like that that amazing part where she comes out of um her living room and into the kitchen and she's wearing that white dress and he looks mm-hmm. at her and you see like it's you know it's a like kind of a like a medium shot of her but behind her is just this like square of the living room in pitch blackness and just like she's on right on the threshold between the two rooms in this white dress yeah and it's such a like it's almost like borderline a gothic moment and there's there's a certain like i've been watching the you know for like halloween and stuff i've been watching the old um you know universal horror movies and they have that like these like german expressionist you know shadows upon shadows and you know every everything is highlighted in a very careful way i don't know if you have this feeling too but a lot of movies even the ones that i love um from like the past decade or so there's a lot of um it's like you know shallow focus soft lighting like there's not a whole lot of like really there's not a whole lot of angular visual material that's meant to Mm -hmm. be stark and to be heavy and and all of Clint's movies, even like the you know Cry Macho, there's a lot of darkness in that. When it's when it's night, when you see him coming over the horizon, like and just taking a rest as the the sun's falling behind him in that movie, you're like, oh no, this is like the the darkness is as deep as it's gonna get. And he just has this in all his <laughs> movies. And like I'm wondering, yeah. like, do you think that that's an interesting like way to compose this that separates it from other romantic dramas? Because I feel that's such a key part is that. Eastwood and you know Jack Green have this just incredible weight to the the visual style of the movie and it doesn't feel light and it doesn't feel fluffy and it feels um deep you know that there's not uh, the sense of like oh well we're gonna bounce around and you know everyone's perfectly lit all the time and there's no you know it's all very you know controlled and you know to go with that naturalism and that on location stuff, he's like, okay, well on location, it's going to get dark. We're just going to leave that darkness basically there. Like when they go for a walk, you can't see anything. It's just like little pinpricks of light. And Mm -hmm. yeah, like, like what's your estimation of that? Do you find that to be like, given that that's prevalent in so many of other Eastwood's movies, do you find that to be like an asset to his style or do you feel like it's, it can be a little bit much sometimes? I mean, I, I, feel of it the same way I feel about a lot of Clint's particular qualities, right? When it works, it really works. And when it doesn't, it doesn't so much. And in this one, I think it really does, you know, and, you know, to, to know that Jack Green did this, did Unforgiven, you see a lot of those, those, like, as you already mentioned, kind of rich detail, very dark shadows, um, tons of those sort of like silhouettes at, at sort of dusk, you know, and, and I, I think of like the, what is it like a like a little windmill or something you know just like yeah. silhouetted against the the streaking sort of like purples and reds in the sky as the sun sets and things like that 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 are in this so vividly there is the, a real richness to it in certain parts and um and i think that this is probably a a good way to even segue into the compositional choices of that uh, rain drenched climax of the movie because there, I think, is is where the details of the cinematography really come alive for me. Um, there's something about that that kind of sort of stony palette to it that that I don't know just renders it much more striking than the rest of the movie, and especially like Clint's green truck 
against like the 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 rain and against like the the kind of slatiness of of the road and that like very eye popping orange of the other vehicle. Uh, I, I don't know. There's something really just vivid about it. So like rich and detailed to it. it. The colors in this movie are not something that I hear like spoken about a lot. I, I, it's not a thing that I even I think I would be like, oh, well, you've got to watch that movie for like for like the colors. And it's not like a <laughs> like a Robbie Muller, you know, picture or something like that. But this moment particularly is when everything feels uh, just kind of drenched in a wash and like a very specific and very tonally striking kind of palette. Um, and, and it adds, I think, to just the, the, the weight of it, uh, of it all, um, to, to paint a picture for you here of this scene for those at home, hopefully you've seen the movie at this point and not just listen to, you know, 90 minutes of us talking about it without ever having seen it. God uh, bless the people who this, do that though. Cause they're incredibly weird. <laughs> they are. They're very weird. They're very brave. We support you all, uh, braver than the troops perhaps. Um, but in this moment, Francesca has already decided to stay in her life with her husband. Uh, we know that Robert Kincaid is staying in town for a few more days. He's urging her to to change her mind, you know, to to come and and run away with him. And they go into town, and it's raining. Richard is driving his truck. He's picking up some feed. He's picking up various things that he needs from town for the farm. And in the midst of this downpour, Francesca from the passenger seat of her vehicle stares out into the street uh, and sees Robert standing in the rain, soaking, uh, and their eyes meet. And I don't know. There's there's a world spoken without any dialogue here for about five minutes of film, uh, and you just see these two characters acknowledge and understand one another. And Francesca sort of, you know, she she falters for a moment in the car thereafter. Um, but there's so much definitiveness to it. There's so much texture there, uh, and the moment when we see you know, into, into Clint's car and we see him hang her necklace, uh, from the rear view is uh, again, one of those tearjerker moments where you're just like, I'm blown away by it. It's, it's as vividly rendered. It's as, it's as thoughtfully composed as any of Clint's action sequences in any of his other movies. It, it really is like the, the big showstopper piece of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's for talking about like his restraint and his pragmatism and all that. I mean, that that scene is straight out of like a, a Douglas Sirk or a Frank Borzage movie where you yes. just you, you enter into um, like the the unreal interiority of the two characters projected onto the landscape and you like the the boundaries between like their subjective worlds and the objective world totally collapses in, in the one scene. Yes. And you, you, you almost like, like, again, it doesn't use any belabored metaphors for it. Like it's, it's a sad scene and it's raining and, you know, they're both like just obviously crying and to, to see Eastwood kind of this, again, this, like this figure of like uh, Hollywood, you know, male virility and all this, like kind of just like sitting there, just looking 
utterly devastated <laughs> while this mm-hmm. whole downpour is happening around him. And just like, he doesn't even care, right? Like the, that it's raining and you can see that, that bit where, you know, he's parked in front of them and, uh, and her husband asks her, you know, it's like, Oh, what's wrong? Like, why, why are you crying? Like what's, you know, and, and she just looks and she's like, I can't, you know, like she obviously can't tell him. And then, uh, you know, Robert just, you know, leaves them behind. And like the way that his, uh, like his taillight blinker is reflected through like the, the rain on the glass windshield of their car. Like, I mean, Eastwood like rarely kind of does those little touches, but, but in this, I mean, again, because of the rest of the film is so like more or less naturalistic and like very, you know, um, like autumn colors and all that. Like when he has this like powerful juxtaposition of like the bright red light and then the, the dour, you know, blue grayish monolith of color around them. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's, it's a real authentic climax moment that doesn't have to do that much to elicit this, you know, wealth of emotions. And yeah, it's just, it's incredible stuff because it's, it's a profound sadness from everyone involved where I think, you know, obviously between the two of them, but then, uh, Richard doesn't, understand any like before like what happens and in my head it's almost like i feel like in that moment he understands oh you know what like there's something wrong and and that is what leads him later in his life to apologize in the way that he does because i think he realizes like my wife has been carrying this hurt in a way that i've never been able to address and and it's important that i recognize it and understand it and acknowledge it if that's all I can do. Right. And like, it's again, it just grants the whole movie. Um, like I think an effective climax does do that thing where it not only provides something that's exciting and, and satisfying and emotionally cathartic, but it also allows us to reframe the entire movie as being like, not the um, ultimate tragedy, because it is a tragic scene, but because of what happens in that scene, we also get the more life-affirming aspects that come afterward. And we get to see her, you know, discover that even though he's physically gone, that she's never going to be without him and that she's always going to have what he gifted her. And ultimately what he gifted her was herself, you know, her sense of self-respect and, and self-identification and and being able to uh, give herself the grace to, you know, just say like, even though like my kids are, you know, leaving and there's something about this whole choice that I made that is, um, that wasn't quite what I wanted. Like I'm not living with like a load of regrets in my heart. You know, there was like, there was something achieved here and, you know, between the two of them, no one could take that away. I mean, you know, it's, look at sappy shit or I'll tell you what, it works on me every time. <laughs> It's great. It's it's incredibly effective. Uh, I mean, I you you can see the strings being pulled. You can feel the manipulation with the score swelling and the rain falling. It, it is, as you said, very like Circean melodrama. Um, but you know, none of us are made of stone. No, <laughs> and, no. And, uh, and, and, and if and someone's good at what they amazing. do, I mean, look, Douglas Circa's is an incredible director. You know, it takes skill to do that. It's not easy. It's not like oh, I just you know do these like uh 
because to me, like, and a lot of movies, again, ones that veer more on the sentimental side, like when they try to do those obvious tactics and it doesn't feel earned, then like I immediately recoil and I say, no, you don't have access to like the emotions that you're trying to elicit. You don't have that. Like, I'm not giving you that movie. Like it it actually does make (laughs) me like, like viscerally pissed off when I watch a movie like, um, I don't know, like, like the terminal or something where I'm like, nope, you're not doing this to me. (laughs) You know, I just immediately reject it. (laughs) And, but with this, like, again, because the movie has been so patient, like you talk about it, it takes its time. It doesn't try to push you into anything. You want to merge yourself with the art. And um, I think Mm -hmm. that's like an experience of, of ecstasy. And like I said, a revelation that um, again, like most movies don't have that and that's okay. Like I, it's a hard thing to do and like not even great filmmakers. I don't think do it all the time. And um, yeah, like, like when you approach a a movie like this, I'm honestly curious, like, do you um, have some kind of ingrained resistance to being like, I don't want to be, emotionally manipulated i want to you know make up my own mind about this like do you have that kind of um i would like resistance i suppose like like do you feel like a movie has to kind of prove itself to you in that way are are you much more like Mm. oh no no i'm willing to meet it on its own terms like what because some people i know like they they're very much like no 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 i've seen too many bad instances of you know, something like this, right? Where it's like the, the piano plays and, you know, there's all these, uh, there's mm-hmm. these signifiers of what you're supposed to be feeling. And a lot of people just say like, nope, immediately I'm, you know, I'm, I'm closing the iron door, you know, the like, yeah. How, how do you feel about that? Because obviously I think you enjoyed this movie. So like, do you feel that it's um, like, it opens up a space for you emotionally? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think I have kind of like a, I don't know. I, I always sort of have a skepticism, I think, but it's it's tempered, you know, like I, I do want to meet movies uh, on their own terms and, and where they're at and what they're trying to achieve. But I think that you're right that this kind of thing is done so poorly so often that to see it done really well uh, is its own reward. You know, e- even if you know, I I wasn't moved by it, and believe me, I was. <laughs> I was I was a a like a, a mess at the end of this movie, and it was it was very effective. Uh, but even if if I wasn't overcome with that, uh, you know, expression of of emotion, and you know, the the waterworks didn't start up to see it done well would have been a richness, and to say, okay, I get it, I get why that is is uh, effective, I get why that is a smart choice here. That to me is something that I, I do really enjoy. So no, I, I don't think that there's any reluctance. I don't think that I like, you know, close up into a ball when I see this kind of thing start to happening or like at the first sign that there's this sort of melodrama taking place. Yeah, you don't approach it with suspicion and cynicism. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, I, and nor I, I don't want to, at least, you know, I, I think maybe, uh, you know, some might might believe that that's the case, or I may give the impression sometimes that I, I am overly cynical. Um, but again, it's just because it, a lot of times when I arrive at an opinion about a movie, it's because I've seen the execution of it and said, this just doesn't work for me. This doesn't do this well. Um, and especially when you have a movie like The Bridges of Madison County, it's hard to to live up to that standard and say like, okay, I've seen this thing done now, uh, and I've seen it achieved <laughs> in a way that is... Uh, incredibly masterful and effective 
Um, so yeah, I, you know, this one, it doesn't bother me here. It's, it's really rewarding here. And I, I like to believe that, uh, if, if something were to come along today that were able to achieve those heights, I would, I would be able to suss it out and, and recognize it for what it was. That begs the question. Cause I try to think of, you know, what is the modern version of, you know, a Douglas Sirk movie or a movie like this mm-hmm. and who's capable of doing it. And really we don't, you know, it's kind of like the death of the Hollywood, like studio comedy, you know, like the, yeah. the romance movies are just uh, like basically non-existent. Robert, I hope you don't mind me asking, but I feel like I should. What? Well, these uh, women friends of yours all over the world, how does it work? Do you see some of them again, or you forget about others? Or do you write to some of them? Now, men, how do you manage it? Hmm? What do you mean? I just need to know the routine, the procedure, so I don't upset your routine, you know? You want some jam? What are you talking about routine? There's no routine. Is that what you think this is? Well, what is this? Well, is it up to me? You're the one who's married, and you have no intention of leaving your husband. To do what? Go off with someone who needs everyone, but no one in particular. I mean, uh, what would be the point? Can you pass me the bar, please? I was honest with you. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. You have. You have this habit of not needing, and that's very hard to break. But in that case, why sleep? You don't need rest. Why? Eat, you don't need food. What are you doing? Gee, I don't know, maybe I'm not cut out to be a world citizen who experiences everything and nothing at the same time. How do you know what I experience? I know you. Oh? And what can this possibly mean to someone who, who doesn't need meaning, who just goes with the mystery, who pretends that he's not scared to death? Let's stop this right now. You know, after you leave here, I'm going to have to sit here for the rest of my life and wonder what happened to me, if anything happened at all. I think that actually brings me to kind of my my last thought here on on Clint, you know, that, I mean, he was he was an old man when he made Bridges. Mm-hmm. And he's an older man now, and he's still making movies, and he's still making interesting movies. Um, I mean, there's just something completely... Like- you want to talk about late style. It's the latest that a late style is ever going to get. Like, Oh my God. I, I mean, 15, 17 to Paris. I did see Cry Macho. Oh my incredibly, God. Cry Macho is incredibly late period. 1517 is one of those things where, you know, I, I, I read a review that, that I really <laughs> loved where, you know, that, that gelato scene comes on and you're like, this uh, is a free man. Like this, this is a man who, who can do whatever he wants. <laughs> it's astonishing that, Again, it's it's like the late John Ford movies or the late Howard Hawks movies where yep. the, the style is beginning to like, it's either like calcifying to the point where it becomes so brittle and it starts falling apart and you get those moments like the gelato bit or like the stuff in Cry Macho where it's just like, it's like basically a silent movie. Like the dialogue is so <laughs> stripped back and you're like, this is not like a narrative feature. It's just a 
like Clint and a kid and a chicken <laughs> going on the road. And like 1517 is just like, yeah, like that gelato thing. I mean, you know, you look at stuff like Bridges and Unforgiven. And there's a revisionist quality to them. And they do feel like, they still feel fresh to me. Like they don't feel like, oh, this is like old creaky 90s movie that doesn't know what it wants to be. And it's overproduced. And you know, all the stuff that we can criticize 90s movies for. They don't, these two don't feel like um, holdovers from that era that like, oh, this this Oscar winner hasn't aged well. No, like the Bridges feels great. Um, Some of like the late Clint movies, I'm wondering like in people, like people in 30 years when they look at like, ah, like, you know, like the way we like we look at, you know, John Sturges or whatever, like ah, Clint Eastwood, this guy, what was he all about? And they watch 1517 to Paris. Like, you got to think like, they're like, um, I, I just don't know what to make of this. Like, it's, <laughs> it's just, it, it's, I guess it's a movie, you know, it's, um, and, but to me, I'm so grateful. I really am grateful to have <laughs> a guy like him who worked on a TV show in the fifties, still making movies in the 2020s. And yes. like to, to have that legacy. I, I, like when I watched the latest Walter Hill movie that came out and it was like, a, mm. it was a dead for a dollar. I felt this pervasive, like longing and this deep sadness, but also a happiness that I'm like, you know, Walter Hill is like the last guy who's making an unironic, unrevisionist, like straight down the middle Western that feels like, you know, Bud Boddicker or Anthony Mann could have made it, you know, like a straight Mm -hmm. up B picture and like, not even like, Oh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like Tarantino, let's take it at the violence up a notch. Like he doesn't do that. He's like, no, 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 it's, it's quiet. Most of it's people talking. It's, you know, it's very measured. And I'm like, Oh my God, this guy is like basically the last part of that, that tradition. And, And so is Eastwood. Like he's, yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I think his political, you know, the part of his persona, I find it to be like more or less kind of um, like a, a little bit spurious and like all like the, the libertarian provocations and stuff that he does. Like I find it to be like the least exciting aspect of him as a, you know, as a person. And I also Absolutely. understand people who are like, you know, oh, he, you know, he did this or he said this and it's over. Right. But even if like there's that eagerness to, you know, kind of reject him as this relic. I really feel like his commitment to the process of making movies. I think it's really important. I think it's like, yeah, there's almost like a, a, a valor in his insistence on like, I am, you know, 92 years old. Here's cry macho. It's a weird movie. And it's like, who, like no one else really does that. And I, even if like again we can reject him as like a um as an individual with like flaws and and whatever as as an artist i feel like we have to reckon with the fact that he obviously cares about making movies and you know he'll just toss off a a bridges in madison county and say oh yeah another one in the can on to the next one and you know like there's an adventurousness (laughs) there there's like a again there's like a oh what haven't i done let me make two war movies at the same time and one of them's going to show the american side and the other's going to show the japanese side and like they're both yes. going to be about the same event like who's doing that it, like no, no one's doing that and like for him to yeah. put himself out there and say like all right all the you know the reputation i built up in like the 60s and 70s i'm going to put that money behind creative endeavors and i'm going to try to do interesting things and 
like that to me that that's I, nothing but respect for that like that i that's what artists should be doing it's he's not precious about his stuff he's just like if i can work i will work and i just i care about making movies in a way that it's a vital part of my life and like look if that isn't cinephilia i don't know what is like what what are any of us doing here if we can't like <laughs> understand that and like just have to have the movies be such a big part of our lives and just to be like you know clint's like uh you know what, what number avengers movie came out uh here's <laughs> here's richard jewell and you're like what is this <laughs> and you know it's it's like the height of um like fucking, you know it's counter programming right like the mm-hmm. i mean it, it's and to talk about his age is also to talk about like the inevitability of his passing and and for me Ugh. when when guys like him and ridley and and coppola when when, because they because they're all around the same age and when that starts to like happen man it it is it is going to be because we we had peter bogdanovich earlier Mm -hmm. and like that to me was like he was kind of one of the earliest new hollywood guys who was able to you know kind of do his thing and again like really an an archetypal (laughs) cinephile too and a film critic and a, a an archivist and you know just like a piece of literal history will be lost when a guy like clint passes you know this whole weight of this era like that'll just be gone and you know when we we talk about the the emotional sustenance of a film like bridges in madison county man this this movie will seem like you know great like happy comfort food (laughs) compared to you know just feeling like oh man like look Mm -hmm. look, I'm, i'm I'm not that old, but like Clint's been with me for almost all of my life and I've yeah. you know watched all almost all of his movies and it's like that thing you rely on, right? And it just I, I don't know, you know, it's uh the fact that he's made several Bridges of Madison County tier movies. I mean, yeah, just great. And if he's got more in him, then I'm 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 more than happy to go see him even if they're weird or silly or you know if it's even if it's like that gelato scene you know times 10 i'm like well but who's doing the gelato scene you know pt anderson isn't doing gelato in his movies you know like i you just you're like ah the audaciousness let's see what happens next like i love that shit yeah i will just echo your sentiment i think clint is one of the masters i think uh whatever he's doing i'm interested in seeing He's, you know, in his 90s, he's still working. He's he's shooting a movie or at least in pre-production right now on another movie. The man is not going to stop. <laughs> he's probably going to end up dying on a film set, you know, like that's he's just addicted. the kind of guy he is. <laughs> he's addicted to it. He's 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 got the he's got the itch, man. And yeah, I mean, he's just he's such a, a has been such a prominent figure throughout my life in so many different iterations. He's gone through so many like minor and, and interesting little evolutions as an artist over his career. And he is, he, he is an artist who has just sort of that prolific attitude of I'm going to make something, I'm going to try something. It works or it doesn't, who cares? I'm just going to keep going. And that kind of voraciousness and that kind of energy is something that I think, uh, makes him precious to me even when he's not precious about his work you know and um god i the, the thought of losing someone like clint really is 
just like awful, awful to even consider. There, you're you're right. There is going to be a, a there's going to be like a, a a series of years there, maybe like a five or ten years where we're going to lose a lot of the greats, and it's going to be a reckoning, and it's going to be really brutal, and really yeah, sad. You're like, you're like where's Cry Macho too? <laughs> where's uh, <laughs> where's the next West Side Story remake? And it's going to be like, oh. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I'm just I'm just thankful that like we do get movies like where it's like, ah, oh, you know what though. You know, Clint, this guy, whatever, but Bridges, that's a really good movie. And like the, when when the yeah. material stands on its own and there's so much of it, you're like, it's again, it's like a great series of albums or, you know, like a guy who just made like painting after painting that are all in this, you know, this well vivid realized style. You just that the work speaks for itself. And I think that's when you talk about his um, on preciousness, like that's the truth of it, right? The Ultimately, the movie's. Like the movies like this, like they tell you about the man and they tell you about the people who made them and the time that they were made in. And I mean, just as like historical documents, as artistic statements, there's just so much to dig into. And I think that's what's great about your podcast is that, you know, you take these movies that, um, especially now are kind of aging into, I think their most important state, right? Like we're kind of past the era of like, the nineties were, you know, kind of this dorky mess and you had all these like, again, like overproduced movies. Now we kind of look back and we say, ah, you know what though? The nineties, like there's a lot of messy stuff, but there's a lot of interesting stuff as well. And so Mm -hmm. now we're in that age of, um, you know, it's, it's coming to its own, right? Movies like Armageddon and Blade have come into their own and, you know, you, you watch them and you're like, ah, this is, it's, this is important as, um, as a piece of, integral history if nothing else and like you taking the time to kind of chart this um this series of like films that still mean a lot to people in that way i think is like really important as an act of like both cinephilia but also as an act of preserving the the memories of really what's important to the art form is that you know the people's passion for it well, thank you for that, Yui. That means a lot. To, to wow, you're gonna make my ego inflate here a little bit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said about our project here at Hit Factory, and uh, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, I think that that's a, a good place for us to wrap today on Clint and Bridges of Madison County. It's been a, a abundant conversation. It's been a wonderful long conversation about this movie and about the God Clint Eastwood, uh, Comrade Yui. Thank you so very much for hanging out with me for uh, a few hours today and and talking about this uh, this masterpiece. Yeah, no, no problem. I I love doing it, and you've been just a great host, and I love what you guys do. And yeah, it was just it, really it was honestly wonderful, and I discovered a lot about my own thoughts about the movie while talking with you, and that's that's a great gift. So I thank you for that. One of my favorite things that happens on this show is uh, I, I finally get to messily arrive at how I feel about a movie in real time with yeah, someone else. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yui, where can uh, where can people find you? Yeah, um, so I'm on Letterboxd, um, just at comrade underscore Yui. Same thing on Twitter. Um, I have a Patreon where I do like more long form film criticism, and um, I do videos sometimes, and just like audio recordings and you know i'm just kind of everywhere mostly i do film writing and um yeah i always post what i'm watching always you know kind of try to keep updated with both recent releases and you know old stuff that i'm digging into and um 
you know, I binge directors and, and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, if you're interested in kind of anything I said here, um, or just mildly curious about Clint Eastwood, I've written basically a review on every single film <laughs> he's ever made. So <laughs> you could check those out. Um, but yeah, otherwise I just, uh, I just like movies like anyone who's probably listening to this does. Um, but yeah, that's me. Great. I will, uh, wholeheartedly endorse for our listeners, uh, follow Yui, uh, on Twitter, around the internet, but also on Letterboxd, where even when I uh, vehemently disagree with you on a film, uh, <laughs> your, your writing on it and, and your thoughts always leave me with something to consider and, and feel uh, themselves very considered and very well articulated. So uh, it's always really rewarding to get your take on movies. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me, actually. Thank you. Um, and from our end of things, you can follow along with us at Hit Factory Pod. You can subscribe to the show uh, on Patreon for bi-weekly bonus content for just $5 a month on patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Shout out to Linda and Jesse K, our overlords. We love you. And we will catch you all the next time. See ya. In a world of glitter and glow In a world of Pencil and show the unreal from the real thing is hard to know. I discovered somebody could be truly worthy and true Yes, I found my ideal thing When I met you I see your face before me my only dream There is your face before me See the magic.